listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. The Day of Atonement was the most important day of the year for Israel. And to this very day, Yom Kippur remains the most important day on the calendar for our Jewish brothers and sisters. And here's why. Throughout the year, there was an elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings that the people could take advantage of when they committed some sin that they knew of, uh, when there was some uncleanness that they contracted through their ordinary living. There was an elaborate system of sacrifice that they could take advantage of to live in faithful relationship to God. However, throughout the year, people would accumulate many sins of which they were not aware. There were times when they would become unclean without even realizing it. And remember, this is, a, this, this is thousands of people. There were inevitably people in the covenant community who were not dealing with their sins properly. So the Lord instituted the Day of Atonement as the great day of purification for the people of Israel. It was a great day of purification for the priesthood of Israel. It was a great day of purification for the tabernacle in Israel. And here's the deal. The whole point was to, to maintain holiness in the community so that their holy God could live in their midst and commune with them. Remember, the, even the, the, the form of the camp, the 12 tribes gathered around like this and the tabernacle was in the center. God literally wanted to dwell in the center of his community. He wanted to be the center of his community. But in order for him to live in the center of his community in a way that was safe for his people, they needed the Day of Atonement. As we come to understand the ritual that took place on the Day of Atonement, a powerful picture emerges, and that powerful picture of the ritual leads us to the reality. So, we're getting into the ritual for the purposes of seeing how it leads us somewhere. I want you to understand how all of the scriptures whisper Jesus' name. All of the scriptures are doing this to Jesus. Every institution, every character, whether by type or antitype, whether by a positive example or a negative example, all of the scriptures, the entire story is leading to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So just when you thought Leviticus was one of those books you could safely skip over, here comes the pastor bringing it back to you saying there are crucial dynamics of the gospel that you need Leviticus in order to understand. And so let's look at this ritual. Let's, let's begin to work through this. We begin with verses 1 through 2 where we are given some context, a brief note of context. We're told that the Lord gave these instructions to Moses to give to Aaron not long after Aaron's two sons 
Nadav and Abihu, they went into the holy place and they offered what was known in the scriptures as strange fire. In other words, they thought that they could just wander into God's presence any old way that they wanted to. And the holiness of God broke out against them and consumed them. And so the Lord gives Moses these instructions to give to Aaron so that he can carry out his priestly ministry without the holiness of God striking out against him. This is the brief note of context that we're given in this text. In verses 3 through 5, we get a description of the high priest Aaron's preparation for the work that he had to do on that day. And we notice that he was doing this work by himself. When he went into the holy place, it was a work that he did by himself. He didn't need any help. He did the work by himself. The first thing that the high priest is required to do in this passage is divest himself of his garments. Now, if you remember back to Exodus 28 that we covered just just a little while ago, if you remember the description of the priestly garments, the priestly uniform, you remember that it was an extraordinary, an extraordinary set of garments. It was beautiful and ornate. It was embroidered. It had precious gemstones. It had gold woven into it in such a way that the high priest looked more like a royal figure at the end of the day. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest divested himself of his glorious and beautiful attire. He bathed and then he put on simple linen garments. He no longer looks like a royal figure, but now he looks like a humble servant. We're going somewhere. He has changed into his work clothes in order to do his atoning work. In verses 11 through 14, after this uniform change, the priest offers a bull as a sin offering for himself and for his household because even the high priest was a sinner like his fellow Israelites. He would kill the bull and then he would take a censer and he would fill it with coals from the altar. And then he would put two handfuls of, of incense in that censer and then he would go beyond the veil and he would enter into the holy place and put that censer in there so that the smoke cloud would ascend in that holy place around the mercy seat so that he would not inadvertently lay eyes on that holy God and die like that. He would create the smoke screen, so to speak. And then he would go and take the blood of the bull and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times with his finger. The high priest would then collect two goats from the congregation and he would bring them before the Lord and cast lots. Casting lots is sort of like, you know, flipping a coin. He would cast lots over these two goats. One of these goats would be devoted to the Lord and the other of the goats would have a different purpose. He would bring these goats as designated for sin offering. And one goat would be killed and its blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat just like the blood of the bull. But the goat, its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat 
on behalf of the people to cleanse the sanctuary because of the defilements that the people brought in to the sanctuary. The high priest would then apply the blood of both the bull and the goat to the horns of the altar of sacrifice for cleansing. And this would cleanse the holy place from the sins of the people. However, after the priest was finished atoning for the holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, he would present the other goat alive, the scapegoat. And at this point, the priest would lay both his hands on the head of this scapegoat. And he would begin to confess all of Israel's sins and all of Israel's iniquities and all of Israel's impurities over the goat. And mind you, the people were watching on. They were watching the high priest lay hands on the scapegoat so that their sins symbolically were transferred to the scapegoat. And then once the priest finished confessing the sins of Israel over the scapegoat, the scapegoat would be sent out in the wilderness. The people would literally watch the symbolic representative on whom all of their sins were placed slowly disappear from vision, never to be seen again. They watched their guilt and their judgment disappear from sight. By this point, Aaron's linen garments would be covered in blood from all of the sacrifice. They would behold the high priest completely covered with blood. And God makes a big deal about the blood. He makes a big deal about the blood because the blood was known as the symbol of life. And the fact that the priest was covered with blood let Israel know that there was a life that was given for their life. It was life for life. But the high priest would then go into the tent of meeting. He would take off the blood-stained clothes. He would bathe. And then he would once again put on those royal high priestly garments. We're going somewhere. He would offer the burnt offerings on the altar and then anything remaining from the carcass would be taken outside of the camp and burned. This was the redemptive ritual on the Day of Atonement that showed Israel what to do with their guilt. This was the redemptive ritual that made it possible for the Lord to dwell in the midst of his people. And so on and on it would go every year for hundreds of years. Israel would mark the 10th day of the seventh month as a day of atonement. It was no accident that the Lord set the day of atonement on the Sabbath. Because all of the work of dealing with their sins was going to have nothing to do with them. They were going to be resting and fasting while the high priest took care of their sins. We're going somewhere. The day where they were reminded of the accumulation of their sins and defilements, 
the day where they were reminded of the seriousness of their sins and the severity of the judgment they deserved, the day of atonement was the day where they were reminded of their deep need for the priestly ministry. Everyone in Israel would have known you need a priest. But over those hundreds of years, the Lord was forming his people so that they could recognize when the redemptive ritual would give way to the redemptive reality, which brings us to our final point, a redemptive reality. Because there would come a new day of atonement when the great high priest would divest himself of his glory and beauty to prepare for his priestly ministry. Words cannot adequately express the glory and the honor and the dignity and splendor that belonged to the Son of God. But he humbly laid it all aside to do the work of atonement. No longer would the Son of God look like a royal figure. No, he would take the form of a humble servant, Philippians 2 tells us. That the Son of God would be caught dead wearing human flesh is astonishing. When many of us wouldn't even be caught wearing outdated styles. I couldn't get Pastor Irwin to walk down the street wearing bell bottoms. But Jesus was caught dead wearing human flesh. It's astonishing. He would put on work clothes, a human nature, so that he could do his atoning work. There would be no need for the sinless son of God to make an offering for himself. And there would be no need of a veil of smoke to avert his gaze from the Lord because he is the Lord. This allowed Jesus Christ to focus all of his attention, all of his efforts on doing the work of atonement that we needed, on dealing with our sins because it was all about communion with God. This was all that he was willing to do so that God could not just dwell in our midst, but dwell within us so that he can pour out his spirit on us and take up residence in us, the mutual indwelling of God's people with God's spirit. This is what Jesus came to do his atoning work for. And when we get to the passion narratives of the Gospels, the shocking reality is that the two goats are replaced by one Savior. The lot fell on Christ to become a sin offering for his people. But he didn't enter into a tent made with human hands. The book of Hebrews tells us that he entered once for all into the very throne room of God Almighty by means of his own blood. So what? So that he could secure an eternal redemption. But the lot also fell on Christ to become the scapegoat. All of our sins, all of our defilement, all of our guilt and judgment was transferred to him. When Jesus suffered the fire of God's judgment outside of the camp, we watched our sin and judgment departing, never to be seen again. Do you know what the cross has done to judgment day? 
For the Christian, for those who place their trust in Christ, we aren't looking forward to Judgment Day. Judgment Day was moved to the history books for us. When were you saved? About 33 A.D. That's when he did the work of redemption. What does it mean to you to look into the gospel, to peer into the mystery of the gospel and to see hands laid on the son of God and your sins confessed over him, your lust, your gluttony, your selfishness, your arrogance and pride, your know-it-all spirit, your hard-heartedness, your lackadaisical approach to the divine, your casualness around the suffering of your neighbors, all of your sins placed on the head of the Holy One who knew no sin. He was made to be sin. How must God love you? What regard must God have for you that he would do his only begotten son like this? That he would allow a love that existed into eternity past to be interrupted so that you could be enfolded in. That is the mystery of the gospel. Jesus became the scapegoat. And at this point in the unfolding of the drama, the broken body of Jesus was covered in blood. And it was that precious blood representing the precious life of the Son of God that was given so that our lives could be saved. But after he laid his life down on that cruciform altar as an atonement for sin, some of his disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they, they got the boldness and the courage to come and ask for the body of Jesus. And they washed his body. They anointed his body with oil and and wrapped his body in linens and fragrant spices. But early Sunday morning, after the work of atonement was finished, the great high priest returned to his state of glory and beauty. He put his ephod back on with the names of his people in precious gemstones. He he put the, the shoulder pieces back on so that he could carry his people on his shoulders. He put back on that 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 headdress that said holy unto the Lord. And he continues now to this day carrying out his priestly ministry, calling our names out in the very throne room of heaven. Beloved, what do you do with your sin and guilt? What do you do with it? Listen, time will not heal sin. Moral improvements will not outweigh sin. Self-discipline will not overcome sin. Intellectual ability will not outsmart sin. Good intentions cannot excuse sin. The bad news is that our guilt is an objective reality, and we cannot atone for our sins. But the good news is that because of Jesus, you don't have to. As our great high priest, Jesus atoned for sin. As our substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus died for sin. As our scapegoat, Jesus removed our sin. As the risen, gracious God, he forgave sin and conquered sin. The Lord 
required atonement for sin because he is holy. But the Lord makes atonement for sin because he is love. What do you do with your sin and your guilt? There are three possibilities. There are three possibilities. First possibility is you can bury your sin and guilt. You can try to hide it. You can try to keep a stiff upper lip and and fool the people around you. You can continue to pretend and perform for the people around you. You can continue to, to, to get the accolades and get called good, even though you know you're not interested in being good. You can bury your sin and guilt. That's the first option. The second option is you can let your sin and guilt bury you. And the third option is that you can bring your guilt and your sin to the great high priest who made atonement. And by faith alone, you can watch your sin and your guilt and your judgment depart at the cross, never to be seen again. What do you take away from this passage this morning? There are a few thoughts that I want to encourage you to walk away with. First, as a priestly people, we must divest ourselves. We must divest ourselves, which is another way of saying that we must seek the Lord for humble hearts. I'm not convinced by my observations of social media and our current public discourse, I'm not convinced that Christians really take humility seriously as a virtue. I'm not convinced. I think that many of us think that humility is optional. It's a nice kind of thing if you can get there. But most of the time, it's, it's basically an acceptable sin to walk around swollen with pride over whatever thing that makes you proud. But I want you to see how seriously we are to take humility. Because remember, God set this whole thing up in the center of his community. Why? Because he called his people to be a priestly people, a royal priesthood, a holy community. And that continues to this day. And what do we see in this priestly ministry? We see divestment. I want to encourage you to seek the Lord for a humble heart. And to make a regular practice of repenting of your pride immediately when you see it. And if someone else has borne witness to your pride, let them bear witness to your repentance as well. That counts on social media, by the way. If, if you get caught acting a fool on social media, you realize that you, basically what you're doing is showing off pride. It's time for repentance. Next thing I would encourage you to do is stop nursing grievances against people. Stop nursing grievances. Some people have been nursing grievances for so long, it's now full-grown eating steak. It's time to stop nursing grievances against people. Why? Because the Lord does not nurse grievances against you. You see what the Lord is pleased to do with your sins? Do you see what the Lord is pleased to do with your failures? He doesn't continue to rib you and dig in on you because you're a sinner. No, he's tender. He's a way maker. He has made a way to draw you to his side, even as a sinner. So why don't you stop nursing grievances and instead pursue 
reunification with the people you got beef with, with the people you're at odds with. Next, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to give you a tender heart so that you can deal with sinners like he deals with sinners. It's related to the second. Finally, I just want to encourage you to remember our Christian anthropology. And I bring this up because everything that we're hearing in the world today as it relates to dealing with our guilt and dealing with our shame and what kind of purposes and goals we ought to have for our lives, you don't realize it, but they come with an anthropology, a particular view of what a human being is, uh, what makes meaning, what gives purpose, where morality comes from, all of these, all of these really important things. These, these, these are frameworks, but the world is giving you an anthropology. And, and, and there's a book that just came out by a very sharp cat named uh, Alan Noble. And the name of the book is You Are Not Your Own. And he basically makes the case that the whole message of the world is you are your own. And so you call your own shots. You decide for you what is right and wrong. You not only have the opportunity to make of life what you want to make of it, but he mentions that it, it's also a burden and it's destroying us. And what we see in, in society is an inhumanity to our society. And it's all grounded in a particular anthropology. But the good news today, Christian, is you are not your own. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. You don't have to figure out your identity. It's been given to you. You know what that identity is? Beloved. You don't have to to call the shots on. You don't have to discern and figure out the meaning of life. We've already been given these things. So let this text remind you of our anthropology. And let us turn our hearts to the Lord and take advantage of the access and rest. Remember, it's the great high priest alone who did the work. And it was done on a Sabbath. And that continues on for the Christian to remember that it's ours to rest. And it's Jesus's work to take care of our sins. Rest in his finished work. Don't try to add to it, improve upon it. It's finished. Live in the freedom and joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.